I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll get that fixed. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And we're going to continue to work our way through by uh, reading through uh, from verses 16, chapter 3, verse 16, through to chapter 4 and verse 3. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Well, until now, in our uh, study of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon has not really addressed uh, evil and wickedness head on. Uh, it has mentioned, he has mentioned the evil of folly, uh, but most of what has vexed him throughout so far is really the transitory nature of life. So something that's even good in and of itself, like a good pleasure uh, because of how fleeting life is and how quickly that pleasure can evaporate or how death comes and, and it just renders all of that seemingly rather pointless. It loses meaning and significance. Uh, death comes and foils all kinds of things, even something that's good in and of itself like toil um, and, and working hard and death comes and just take you're gone and then who knows who's coming after you who's going to inherit all that stuff you worked for even something like wisdom that is good has its limits it increases sorrow it can't allow one or cause one to escape death nor does does it allow us to understand all mysteries to understand the big picture of all that goes on so this this is just a sampling of some of the things that has uh, distressed uh, Solomon, or at least that he has presented to us. But he has also been letting in rays of light, as we've pointed to over the last couple of weeks. He's been showing us and reminding us something of the sovereignty of God, who's at work uh, behind the scenes, so to speak, of all that goes on. And he's told us a few times about the goodness 
of receiving in life the good gifts that God gives us. Things like eating, uh, working. He'll go on later. We haven't covered it yet, but to talk of family as well. But now as he continues his examination of life under the sun, he explicitly brings up this matter of wickedness and oppression. And in these verses, he not only brings out the reality of wickedness uh, being prevalent, that is, he's not just pointing to the fact that, you know, wickedness exists, but there are also some lessons given here for us. And so I want us to look at three lessons when considering the reality and pervasiveness of wickedness. But before we jump into those, let's first notice what Solomon says about the pervasiveness of wickedness. Let's look at the problem as he presents it to us. So if you look at verse 16 again, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. So as Solomon continues his observation of life under the sun, that is, uh, life in this world that we inhabit from the standpoint of, of us human beings, he looks out and sees wickedness. He sees evil. Uh, but it's not just that he sees it here and there. Uh, this is not just uh, a simple acknowledgement that there's something just slightly off about uh, our world. He notices it in two places where surely we would think and hope to find righteousness, to find uprightness, to find some measure of goodness. The first place he mentions is the place of justice or the place of judgment. That is the courts, where the courts meet, where verdicts are handed down, uh, the place where one might hope to find justice, to have matters settled rightly, where one can uh, bring a grievance and find an impartial judge to settle the matter, someone who might be objective and neutral. But instead, as Solomon considers that place of judgment, that place of justice, he finds wickedness. This doesn't mean that every verdict ever given, of course, is evil or unjust. Solomon himself was a king. He was tasked with rendering judgments, and we're even told in First Kings that he did render just judgments. Uh, if you remember the story from 1 Kings 3 where two women come and there's one baby and there's an argument over whose baby this belongs to. If you recall Solomon's wise way of handling the situation and determining whose baby it was. If you're not familiar, don't remember, you can go back and read that. But at the end of the chapter, it says, And all Israel heard of the judgment. That's our word translated justice in Ecclesiastes. We, when all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they, uh, sorry, and all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. That's the same word again. Nevertheless, as Solomon looks out and examines the world, looking surely beyond his own kingdom. He sees how common this is to have wickedness in the place of justice. Why is it such a marvel that Solomon would have wisdom and rule justly? Because it's not common. Of course, the, the commonality of, of injustice 
of impartial of, of partial judges of wickedness being in the place of courts is attested all throughout the scriptures and throughout history so we have wickedness in the place of justice but the second place that solomon notices evil is in the place of righteousness which would almost certainly refer to the priesthood and ironically if you think about solomon's life he's he was responsible if indeed he's writing at the end of his life writing this book of ecclesiastes as i've suggested he is he is the one who perverted worship it's partly his fault in israel he had the high places built for his many wives that he took from the nations around him. One would certainly expect to find righteousness in religious leaders. Yet he notes that often there is wickedness to be found there. We also see this throughout the Old Testament, throughout history. How often do we find the prophets in the Old Testament addressing the leaders of the nation? Priests, even the other prophets, the false prophets, saying that they are falsely teaching, saying that the Lord has spoken when he hasn't spoken. These are the religious leaders where they're to find righteousness, but finding wickedness. First uh, Samuel 2 tells the story of Eli and specifically Eli's sons who were priests and were wicked. Even if you think back to the, the first high priest, Aaron. He was leading them when the golden calf was built. He did not stop it, and he made excuses when Moses called him on it. Of course, if we think of Jesus' time, who were some of his main adversaries? You have the Pharisees, the scribes, and the chief priests who made up his opponents. And when they finally convened for his trial, there was wickedness in the place of justice. Right? False accusations in his so-called trial. So we have wickedness in the place of justice and in the place of righteousness. Today, how many pulpits proclaim peace to people when there is no peace? People who in the name of God declare that God is okay with our modern sense of morality, with what is really immorality. Some do this explicitly, giving approval, as if God just loves all the immorality that goes on, doesn't care. Others, by just never saying anything against it, do the same implicitly. I read a news story just recently, and it just kind of passes by because it's kind of ho-hum. We've heard it before of a pastor in a church that I, you know, we would probably, I hope no one here would actually ever uh, attend for long, but nevertheless, known and viewed as a pastor who resigned in scandal. Uh, he was using his position to lure women into immorality until one of them uh, finally blew the whistle on him. And so this problem of wickedness in the place of where we would expect to find righteousness it's not just something that went on in Solomon's day. It's not just an old, you know, an old thing. And by bringing up wickedness in these two places, in the places of the courts and, 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 and religion, priesthood, Solomon is reminding us of the pervasiveness of sin. 
Uh, when the law courts are corrupted in this way, and when those who are tasked with proclaiming the truth of God are also wicked in this way, then society is truly in a desperate position. Right? How great is the darkness when that is the case? How widespread the sin and lostness? In such a case, people can neither get temporal or earthly justice, nor can they find the truth about God. Solomon looks out and he sees this wickedness. At the beginning of chapter 4, which we read, Solomon returns to this topic of wickedness, where he takes up a lament concerning oppression. He says there, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Uh, today, People are saying that you're either an oppressor or you are oppressed. Uh, and then they will assign to you your status of one or the other based on things like your skin color, your religion, your sexuality, etc. And not based on your actions. You'll just look at some of those externals and they will assign you. Uh, it's based on whether or not you are a minority, and in the more categories you are a minority, then the more oppressed you are. This, of course, is not how the Bible uses this term. This is not what Solomon is saying. It's not how he would define oppression. However, he does lament the reality and the presence of oppression. Just because we don't define it the same way as the world does doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Oppression is not a rare experience. Those who attain to power in whatever form they might have it, possess it, often end up wielding that power wickedly, oppressing those who are under them. Jesus spoke about the rulers of the Gentiles and how they lorded over their people. Many of the prophets who came addressed the wealthy and the leaders, they're often the same category of people in Israel because they were trampling the poor, those under them, those who had really no other recourse. This was a great evil. I think this section is tied to what we read in verse 16. As oppressors get away with their oppressions because there is no Justice. There is no righteousness in the courts where there ought to be. And so the oppressed, as he says here, they have no one to comfort them. They have no way out of it. This is the, the awful situation that Solomon is seeing. And of course, oppression isn't limited just to governing authorities. Large businesses. The wealthy. Those with much influence. Virtually anyone with a measure of authority can be oppressive. It can take many forms. And again, oftentimes those oppressed have little recourse. 
And so Solomon, as he sees this, he understands this is the way of things for so many. And how awful that is. He laments that the dead are better off than the living. Since they can no longer experience such oppression. But he goes further that those yet born are still better off than the dead. Since they've not even seen this evil yet. This is a striking and and jarring, maybe surprising thing to read. Intentionally there to highlight the horrible condition of being oppressed. Indeed, oppression can cause resentment that lasts for generations even. So Solomon is reminding us that we live in a sinful world. Even in places where we might hope for better, expect better, courts, the priesthood, the religion, pastors, churches, we often find corruption and evil. And often those oppressed have no recourse, little comfort, such as the pervasiveness of wickedness on the earth. But now as we get into verse 17, we'll get some lessons When considering this reality, as we look out on this, as we consider this world we live in, the pervasiveness of sin. The first lesson is that the pervasiveness of sin will be answered by God's judgment. The pervasiveness of sin will be answered by God's judgment. Verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter And for every work. When wickedness and oppression are found throughout the land. It is important to know that God will judge all of mankind. And just as there is a time for every season. Which remember from verses 1 to 8 that we looked at last week. Just as there is a time for every season. So there is a time for God to bring about judgment. Now we might wonder when will that be. Desire justice now, desire judgment sooner than later, especially if one is suffering. And Solomon will note a number of times throughout Ecclesiastes, when we look at life under the sun, it is clear that sometimes the righteous get what the wicked deserve and vice versa. They'll say that, for example, in chapter 7, verse 15. So when is this judgment going to occur? It doesn't look like it always happens in our lifetime. What judgment Solomon refers to is the eschatological end times judgment. It's the final judgment. In chapter 8, verse 11, he acknowledges that the sentence against evil is not executed speedily by God. Yet, he asserts that judgment will indeed come. Chapter 11, verse 9, we're reminded that God will bring you into judgment, he says. And then at the very end of the book, chapter 12, again, he says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so the implication throughout is that this judgment will be in the end. After all have lived and died, there will be a reckoning with God. And this ought to be a terror to sinners, to the wicked. 
And on the other hand, it ought to be a reason to be hopeful for the righteous, for those who are righteous by faith. To those oppressed with no earthly comforters or to those burdened by the rampant wickedness in society, the answer is to look to the God of justice. In his time, he will hold everyone to account. No evil deed will go unpunished. This is a comfort. Likewise, on the other hand, no righteous deed goes unnoticed by God either, including the righteous deed of bearing up under unjust suffering for the sake of the Lord. In 1 Peter, as Peter, the apostle, is writing to uh, Christian slaves, he says this in chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. And then later in the book, speaking to Christians in general, Peter says, if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. When a Christian is suffering under oppression, under injustice, whatever the form, whatever the source, they should know it is a gracious thing to bear up under it. If one is seeking to trust the Lord, obey the Lord, do what is right, and suffer as a result, the Lord says we are to be blessed. Jesus himself said, you are blessed. Peter comforts us with this word. When those times come and a Christian suffers under oppression and injustice, know that it is a gracious thing to bear up under it. And know that it will be sorted out in time by God himself. The truly just judge. And so as the Lord's people, we can look to God's judgment and find a measure of comfort in it. Especially when all other comforters flee us. Nothing escapes God's notice. And we can then let go of the absolute need for justice at every turn when we are wrong because there is coming a day for all to answer to God and he will handle it. He will sort it out. We can be wrong, therefore, as Jesus was and still bless our persecutors. That doesn't mean that we don't call it evil or pretend we like it. But it means that we don't have to start pulling our hair out in constant frustration as it's happening. It means we don't have to descend into bitterness about it. It means we can stand ready to extend grace when evil is confessed. Uh, we can likewise hold forth God's grace to persecutors in the gospel Knowing that even if they trample it, reject it, continue to oppress, they will answer to God one day. That's not our territory. And so we can be free to pray for them. We know 
we know that even if justice escapes in this life, it will not ultimately escape. The pervasiveness of wickedness is, and evil is rampant, of course, but it will be answered by God's judgment. Second lesson, the pervasiveness of wickedness teaches us of the true depths of human depravity. It teaches us of the true depths of human depravity. We might understandably, again, wonder why God delays his judgment the way he does. Why has he ordered things in this way such that it's common for oppression to be present? While there are many parts of God's plan, as we've been seeing, that are well beyond our understanding and always will be, Solomon does reveal one such reason for the delay. That is, it serves an instructional purpose. It teaches us. Verse 18, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Part of God's purpose is that he is testing in the sense of proving or exposing, revealing to man that we are like beasts. So Solomon's saying, God is revealing to us as we look out and see evil everywhere, just how dark the human heart is. When we see that wickedness reaches into the place where we most want desire, need, righteousness, like the courts. It reveals just how fallen we are. To be called beasts, to be likened to beasts, is indeed an insult, I think meant to be shocking. It's not denying that we are made in the image of God and are above the animals. It is here to remind us of just how far it is we have fallen, that this is an appropriate analogy appropriate thing to call us as human beings we devour our fellow man like the animals devour one another corruption at the most important levels of society and oppression by the powerful are examples of this man is undeniably brutal to man we see this all the time do we not the comment sections on YouTube and Facebook and other places, they did not create brutality. They've just given a new way of expressing it. And you know the kinds of things you've said in your own heart, maybe to other people, about other people, the kinds of hateful thoughts that have gone through your mind, the anger that rises up at the thought of other people. Perhaps at times, knowing that if you had the opportunity, you would gladly have them ruined or see them be ruined. God has permitted this to go on, in part, to teach us, to reveal to us the depths of human sinfulness. The comparison to animals, though, gets teased out a little more in verses 19 to 21. He says, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. 
They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Not only is mankind brutal to one another, making us like beasts in that way, but just like animals, we die and go into the ground. Our high and lofty position as image bearers of God rendered moot by the same thing that happens to animals. Uh, animal death, I think, is, is something that we see a lot more. Uh, even if you live in town, you see dead animals. It's much more common. We're used to seeing death in animals. He's saying the same thing ultimately is going to happen to us. We're going to die. He picks up on language from Genesis 3.19 here, where after Adam's sin, God cursed Adam. He said, by the sweat of your brow, sorry, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This returning to dust is, again, a reminder of the curse that came from sin. This is what Solomon is, is reminding us of. Now, these verses are some difficult ones. They're some of the more difficult verses, I would suggest, in Ecclesiastes. Hard to grasp what exactly Solomon is trying to accomplish here as he says these things. But it is obvious in the immediate context and in the context of the whole book that there will be a time of judgment and reckoning. Solomon knows this. He's just said it already in verse 17. We looked at it. So I don't think he's saying uh, that what he's trying to say here is that there's actually nothing different between the death of a man and the death of an animal. Nor is he saying that we have no idea of anything that follows after this life. He's not a complete agnostic about the afterlife. He has said there will be judgment. He will continue to say these things. He has talked about eternity being in the heart of man. It seems to me that what he's doing here is putting before us the unknowns of the details of death as part of the lesson that we're to learn about our depravity. Sinners ought to see the savageness of mankind and consider what is next after returning to dust. The uncertainty of what's next being something that's not observable to us who are just under the sun, we can't see it with certainty. And so that uncertainty that he's getting at here ought to unsettle a person, ought to unsettle a sinner. The sense of eternity that God has placed in man that we saw last time ought to rise up in acknowledgement that there is something more. The vast sinfulness of mankind, seen everywhere in the ravages of the earth, proves something of the depths of our depravity. We live like beasts, and we die like beasts. And then what? That thought ought to be unsettling to sinners. This testing that God's doing, or proving of man... This is not something that God needs to do for his own sake. He does not need to discover 
the true depths of human sinfulness. Very clearly, this is a proving to you and I, to those with ears to hear and eyes to see, just how far we've fallen. Proving to us what his word declares in very simple, straightforward terms, but which people are prone to not believe or maybe doubt. Namely, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That the attention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Only evil continually, Genesis says. Many would say, nah, that can't be right. And so here's proof of it. Look around. This vast spread of sin everywhere is a revelation that we are horrifically shattered and in need of saving. This is not a small problem. So all of the solutions that man throws out and throws forward, they're not going to work. They don't work. They've never worked until now. Are we better off? Really? Of course, many do not learn this lesson. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11, Solomon says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The delay in judgment so often leads men simply to just seek out more evil rather than turning from it to seek mercy. Many suppress the truth about God and just run headlong into further evil. Like this is the pattern Romans 1 lays out for us. And it demonstrates this man's condition. The true depths of our depravity. This passage does not explicitly speak of mercy. But of course we know that God's word is not just a word that condemns man for his sin. Again, these verses, as much of Ecclesiastes does, it reveals the problem to us. And it cries out for the solution to it. As we consider death from the vantage point of earth, we cannot see what's next. To know what is next requires revelation. It needs to be revealed to us by God. And indeed, God has given revelation about this matter. Man has fallen greatly. From the pinnacle of creation in the image of God to being a beast-like, to having a beast-like existence that's cut short in the end by death much like the animals. How great is our fall. Every man and woman has sinned. Every boy and girl has sinned. This sin problem is not just found with those who have lots of money and who are in power, but it's in every human heart. It's part of our very nature since Adam. Again, in our time of being frustrated by injustices we see around us, very real ones, the abuse of power and authority in our own lands by our governing authorities, we remember that it is not just them who are sinful and fallen. 
all of us and our neighbors share the same nature as descendants of Adam. As Jesus told us, it is from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. That's what Jesus said. So again, it's not just miscarrying justice that counts as sin, but things like evil thoughts, foolishness, even deceit. And so everyone is left condemned. Indeed, as Solomon has said, there is a time for judgment of the righteous and the wicked. But of course, no man is inherently righteous, nor able to make himself righteous. Jesus alone, the Son of God, made flesh, the last Adam, he alone has attained righteousness, a perfect righteousness. And it is his righteousness that sinners need in order to be justified. And it is freely and it is graciously given to all who are in Christ by faith, who are trusting in him. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, chapter 5, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was made sin by taking upon himself the sins of his people, Offering himself as the atoning, propitiatory, wrath-satisfying sacrifice for those sins. And in exchange, those who are in him, who are believing in him, who are united to him by faith, receive the perfect righteousness that Jesus has earned. This is the only solution to the problem of man's depravity. I would submit to you that the father would not send the son if there was some other way. Surely the son would not have died if there was another way. This is the only solution to the problem of man's depravity, a salvation from outside of ourselves. Again, our hope is not in government, even a good one. Even the law of God itself, good and perfect as it is, cannot save, sanctify society. The solution for man's depravity is in Christ alone. And so it is to him that you are to look in faith, to place your trust in him, to confess and acknowledge your sin to God. And it is Christ who will come one day and bring about the judgment of God. And as Paul said in Acts 17, as he was preaching there, God has given proof, evidence, that one day he will judge the world by a man, by raising that man, namely Jesus, from the dead. So this pervasiveness of sin teaches us of the true depths of depravity. And thirdly and, and briefly, the third lesson the pervasiveness of wickedness 
reminds us of our place in this world. Verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? He is drawing a conclusion here from all that has been said uh, so far, going back to verse 16. In light of the wickedness that is on the earth and man's utter ruin and sin, which leads to death, in light of God being the judge, in light of not seeing or knowing who or what will come after us, what is our place? What do we do? How do we live? And Solomon, once again here, is commending to us the goodness of receiving the good things in life as a gift from God. And specifically, he focuses here on rejoicing in work. It is one of the things that he's mentioned a couple of times already. We looked at it at the end of chapter 2 and then again earlier uh, in verse 13 of chapter 3. And here he calls this our lot or our share, our portion, even be our inheritance. It is what God has given to us to be busy with and to enjoy as we live out our days here. It seems clear to me that Ecclesiastes has a rather humble, low view. I don't mean negative. I just mean humble view. When it comes to the matter of of what you and I are going to do to fix and overcome all the wickedness around us. Ultimately, we're not going to fix it. I don't think this means that we shouldn't do what is within our power as we have opportunity. This is not saying we shouldn't speak up and hold forth Christ and in the gospel to the world. Certainly, if we possess power or authority, we should we are to act righteously in it. If you see a need and are able to help with it, by all means, act on it. As you have opportunity, do good to all. If you hear the cry of the needy, jump in and help. But ultimately, we will not be the ones to establish righteousness on the earth. I think that is what is implied in this. It's why he commends what is the rather ordinary gift of work. Again, verse 17, the role of judgment, justice, settling all of this is is God's. So he's again commending the lot that God has portioned to us. And specifically focuses on enjoyment in our work. We might think that maybe that's too mundane. Given all the important stuff out there. Given all the difficulty and trouble. And yet here it is. Solomon again is reminding us of this. With all the big issues in life. With all the troubling things in our world. It does not mean That daily work suddenly just becomes inconsequential and of no real significance because you're not a revolutionary who's changing everything and and, and making everything so much greater and better. You know that if you're not William Wilberforce, then you're really nothing. You really can't please God. That's not what the scriptures teach. Solomon rather surprisingly here points us back to 
the goodness of work and enjoying our labor such as we are able. Some read verse 22 and, and, and think it is pessimistic. As if he's saying that since we can't know what's after death, then, you know, just enjoy yourself now, I guess. Nothing really else to do. Uh, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But I don't think that's what Solomon is getting at. I don't think he's being pessimistic as he writes this. He's already declared this very thing, the, a gift from God, from his hand. And again, here he calls it our portion, our lot. It is the thing God has given. It is good. And so far as possible, we should seek to enjoy it as we serve our God in our labor, even as we live in the midst of much evil. And even as evil sometimes hampers our very ability to enjoy our work, it is nevertheless good and right to strive for that. So the prevalence of sin, as we see it in ourselves, as we look around and see it everywhere, it's discouraging, sometimes very painful. But among other things, it's a reminder, it teaches us of the true depths of human depravity. That man still has not really figured it out, has he? And because this reveals and reminds us of the depths of human depravity, it reminds us likewise further of the importance and necessity of salvation through Christ. And even those who get away with evil now will, as Solomon is reminding us of, they will be met with God's judgment in time, eventually. And this reminds us of the rightness of just enjoying God's good gifts to us. Seeking joy in one of the things that God has given you as gratitude to him. Again, as we talked about last week, knowing our place and God's place. God's is judgment. God's is sovereignty and ruling over all of this. Our position is a much more lowly one. Again, the hero here is Christ. The one to whom we point. And so as we think about all of this, I would encourage you to to do your utmost to settle your soul in these truths in the midst of troubling times. As Solomon has said, there is nothing new under the sun. What has being is what will be. And so set your eyes on eternity. Rest in Christ. Trust him for salvation and rest there. Rest knowing that your God is the judge of all. That in time everything will be made right. As we read earlier from Isaiah 40, there is nobody like your God. He is mighty to save 
And in time, in his time, he will renew all things. Let's pray.